The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catch and Shoot 2.0. I am Aaron Berline, along with my partner, the commissioner, Otto Strong. Yes, I have declared it is now the offseason in the NBA, which means it's the offseason for us, too. But we've had so much good content over the last year plus, and we want to reshare it with you. Here's one of the great interviews that we just think you'll enjoy. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? All right, it is my pleasure to welcome in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer. She is also the vice president for both the Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury, as well as the color analyst for both teams on Valley Sports Arizona. She is the great Ann Myers-Drysdale. First off, Ann, can you have any more jobs? And secondly, (laughs) thank you for taking the time and joining us. Well, thanks, Aaron and Otto. I look forward to the uh, interview and I'm very fortunate to be with Phoenix, uh, with the Mercury and the Suns. I've enjoyed my time there tremendously. So how has this ride with the Suns been this year? It's been great. I mean, certainly I got there in 2007 as the general manager for the Phoenix Mercury, which uh, we were able to win a couple WNBA championships. And then they moved me over to the broadcasting and we won another one in 2014. And so Mike D'Antoni was the coach at the time and uh, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire and that group. But then, uh, you know, Devin Booker's had about six different coaches during that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, James Jones came in and certainly the executive of the year this year in the NBA, but he came in and, and made some changes, a great relationship with Robert Sarver, our owner, and, uh, and certainly Monty Williams coming in. Um, just that relationship that they all have. Uh, you really see it, and it, it plays out into the players, and certainly James and Monty going out to get uh, Chris Paul, who wanted to come to Phoenix, as Jay Crowder did. And uh, those two players, I think, were huge, and certainly the maturation of DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, and uh, certainly D-Book has just, uh, you know, had a tremendous year. So going into this year, a lot of us felt really good. Um, we really did. We didn't know that we would have the second best record in the league, but, uh, we're not surprised by it either. And what could you tell us about, we've heard so many great stories about Chris Paul and, and his leadership and, and how his, um, I, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to infectious. I know this is probably the wrong year to use that word, but just the way that he kind of um, can, can mobilize and get a whole team to, to become something greater than, than themselves. Can you tell, is there anything you could share about uh, things that we might not know about Chris Paul or any, any kind of uh, anecdote about, about that? I don't know if I can, I don't, honestly, because, you know, he has said it himself. He talks about it in the interviews, and Monty Williams has talked about it, and all the other teammates have talked about him. But, you know, it's unfortunate that with COVID, uh, it really separated a lot of, you know, us broadcasters 
from going to practices and being able to interact one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Certainly we get the, uh, the Zoom calls, the Zoom interviews with all the players and the coaches and so forth, but you know, you only get so much, but absolutely you just can feel it uh, when we're broadcasting the games and, and we're seeing out on the court, we're seeing the, the warm-ups and so forth and, and how the coaches are working with the players and just the feel that they all have for each other. Um, you know, they, a lot of them have talked about Chris Paul. All he does is talk. He never stops talking. He never stops talking. And uh, certainly the relationship that he and Monty Williams have from uh, back in New Orleans is huge. And then um, just his leadership. Again, everywhere he's gone, he's won. Uh, but this is a group that is it's really come together. And I know that he has really worked hard with uh, DeAndre Ayton as far as the pick and roll is concerned and where he needs to be on defense and just controlling that back uh, end of the where the basket is and so forth. But, you know, the, the just the information that Chris Paul gives to everybody and his knowledge at 36 years old. I know we keep talking LeBron and so forth, but, you know, Chris Paul and what he's achieved. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the, the guys that are in 35 and older, um, but Chris Paul playing the position he plays and uh, the, the demand on his body. Uh, certainly he takes a beating. There's no question, but there is just such a positive atmosphere and, uh, and a happy go lucky atmosphere too, but don't take away about, uh, from the intensity and the will to win because they are as competitive as anybody. And, and I really think too, Otto and Aaron, that um, the Phoenix Suns have kind of been overlooked all year long and even going into the playoffs. Uh, we're the underdog. People still can't buy into how good we really are. Um, Book getting a, a triple double last night. It shows you he's been doing it. And uh, this is the first time in the playoffs, but he's been doing it throughout his career. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and well, sorry, not to cut you off, Otto, but that's something that Otto and I have talked about on this show a few different times is, you know, even with that first round series against the Lakers, for whatever reason it was, it felt like um, with regardless of how good the Suns look, that people were still saying that the Lakers were going to take that series. And, and I'll admit it. I thought the Lakers were going to take that series. I, I'm not ashamed of it, but it showed to speak to what you're talking about, the toughness, the maturity, and the evolution of this Phoenix Suns team. And I think a lot of that, it has to do with CP3, but it also has to do with, with Devin Booker. And, you know, can you take us back to when the Suns were evaluating Devin Booker and what that process looked like? Because this was a player that was on a really deep Kentucky team, didn't get a lot of run, but you guys saw something in him that I don't think a lot of teams initially saw. No, and he, and he didn't start. He was a sixth player and uh, very young. At 18, he came into the league, and we had Goran Dragic, and uh, I think we had Bledsoe at the time. I think we had um, uh, Knight, or Brendan Knight. Uh, not Brendan. Is that right? Brendan? Yeah. <laughs> We've had so many different guards throughout the, the years, but um, we had solid backcourt and everything. But, uh, you know, he sat and learned, and, and certainly, as I said, he came and uh, played for a lot of different coaches. Uh, I know he had a great relationship with uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, he's very close to his dad. His dad has been a, a very much a mentor to his mental approach to the game, both his mom and dad. And uh, I, there was a, a game uh, a few years ago. I happened to be calling the game, I think. Uh, maybe it was Eddie, Eddie Johnson. But um, he got uh, the second technical. Book got a second technical. And I think we were on the road. He, walk, he was walking off the court. And somebody asked him for his autograph, and he's smiling. He sat and signed the autograph. So, I mean, he understands what the fans are about. He understands that, you know, giving back to the community, which he's promised $2.5 into the community with different nonprofits. And uh, so he gets it. But he's very intense. 
as far as playing. He takes his game very seriously. He's worked on it. The year that he had was about two or three years ago. He, he hurt his right hand. So that time he spent using his left hand. So as, as good as he is, I mean, he really goes to his left quite a bit and can shoot with it in his ball handling. Um, so, you know, he works on his game. P.J. Tucker was with the team uh, early on, and I know P.J. Tucker toughened him up. And uh, just different guys, veterans that have come along and, and helped him along the way. But I know, again, Kobe Bryant, and he really had a good relationship, which Kobe did with a lot of the guys. And uh, But, you know, for whatever reason, they really clicked. And if you look at his game, uh, he's probably the most in this league right now that plays like Kobe skill-wise. And we had a, a, an exciting game one. Obviously, the Suns took that. We had no Chris Paul for game one, no Kawhi Leonard on the other side for game one. Where, what, are, what are you looking for in terms of game two? Where do you, how do you see that break coming down? Well, you know, certainly the, the Clippers are going to make adjustments. I mean, they just came off a seven-game series. And, uh, you know, Paul George is amazing. Uh, the, some of the shots that any of these guys make is just mm -hmm. crazy. But, um, you know, I, I think with Jackson and, and Beverly coming off the bench and, and Rondo, uh, you've got a good backcourt with the, the uh, Clippers. And I thought that, you know, Boogie came in. Boogie really changed uh, the game a little bit. You know, he scored those 11 points, and, and he's so physical and big and strong. So, uh, But we made adjustments, too. I think the fact that we've played in different styles and Chris Paul uh, being the leader that he is as far as understanding what kind of pace we need to play. and uh, But he's passed that on to the other players too, uh, Devin Booker. And we know when to run. And certainly we're, we're a pretty good team when we run mm -hmm. and can fast break and, uh, and not bad. I mean, even if you look at Chris Paul as far as uh, his steals at 35, 36 this year, I mean, he's still coming up with steals. And he may not get the steal, but he'll create it. Uh, which Mikhail Bridges has been one of the top guys since he's been in this league in his third year uh, with steals. And uh, we had a key one at the end of the game. Um, certainly, uh, I think that, um, you know, the other players really feed off Chris Paul. But uh, I, certainly, as I said, Clippers are going to make adjustments. I think Ty Lue's done a terrific job, you know, going small ball. Uh, in the last series, and I think that that really affected uh, in the Jazz, and yeah. uh, and it really took uh, Gobert out of the game quite a mm -hmm. bit. So um, you know, and then of course uh, uh, Donovan Mitchell, you know, hurt his ankle, and and Mike Conley was in and out of the lineup because of his injury and didn't play. I think the first three games, or you know, so forth. So you know, and injuries were part of the game, uh, but. I think the Clippers probably didn't have enough time to adjust. And I think fatigue is going to be a factor uh, to benefit the, for the Suns. You know, and uh, you've spoken about toughness and the Suns team alludes to that. I, I mean, I can't think of a more difficult situation to have to overcome than to lose your point guard like Chris Paul because of protocol issues and then rebound the way that they did in game one. Can you give us an update on CP3? What, I mean, obviously, you might not know his status at this time, but you know, more of an update on where he's at and then kind of how the team responded to that news initially and how they picked themselves up. Well, we don't know the status, and we won't find out um, until later. But uh, in saying that, you know, Monty Williams has preached the, the system all year long, and uh, certainly Chris Paul has been at the head of that and running it. But uh, he's missed two games. One, I think he sat out with an ankle. And then the other one that uh, Monty sat him to get him, you know, just give him rest. But as much as he wants to play, you can tell that the other players understand what they're supposed to be doing. Chris Paul talks to these guys all the time 
whether they're on the court or off the court. And that's the benefit that this team is such a team, you can tell that they all get along. And so when they came out of the bubble last year, 8-0, you know, there was such a, a happiness, a friendliness. It reminds me a lot of a high school team. You know, these guys hang out all the time. They're laughing. And uh, it's a basketball game. They're having fun playing a game that they love. And uh, Chris Paul certainly inspires that. And it's you've got a bunch of young guys. And, and Jake Crowder, who's a veteran. Uh, Frank Kaminsky, I think, coming off the bench, he really helped us during his stretch when uh, uh, DeAndre was out. And uh, But everybody has really contributed. Dario. And, and the other guards, and, and uh, when Cam Johnson's been out, uh, somebody else has stepped up. And so, you know, we've really had a, a great group of guys that have accepted their roles, and they're going to come in and play as hard as they can, as many minutes as they get. Nobody's been unhappy. Nobody has created any, you know, uh, words to the, the uh, media. And there is such a sense of this, this team is a family. They're tight. They are together, and whatever happens is going to stay with them. And, uh, but, you know, when, when Chris Paul gets on DeAndre Ayton, for example, or, or Book gets on Ayton, um, there's no animosity. It's a teaching moment for all of them. And, uh, but they're all, they're all hanging together. And, uh, you know, it's so much fun to see a team like that. And it reminded me of the first year that I got to Phoenix when uh, Steve Nash and, and DeAndre, uh, D'Antoni was the coach, and um, that team was so much fun. They're, you know, they're doing squirt guns at each other, and they're just, I mean, everybody's laughing and having a good time and loving playing the game of basketball, and, uh, and that's what this team has been. Has Chris Paul been Zooming with the team at all? I'm sorry? Has Chris Paul been Zooming with the team at all? I'm Unbeknownst to us, that wouldn't <laughs> surprise me. <laughs> And I, I, I definitely feel your, where you're coming from with regard to the whole, the whole team uh, chemistry, you know, vibe thing they, they got going on. I personally like Jay Crowder uh, being, I was someone who, who said, let's say was not a Boston guy. So <laughs> anytime I used to see Jay Crowder, I was like, ah, but I really, I mean, I've really come to appreciate what, you know, what he brings. Um, and I was also thinking back to a story that I heard some time ago, and it's maybe an old story for you, but for, for some folks who are listening to us who may not, Follow the Suns as closely. Uh, that Monty in his earlier years was not the kind of guy who, let's say, would want to you know get as much input from players like a Chris Paul. And so one of the things that, that you know for just putting it out there for everybody to know that uh, Monty has become more accepting, obviously in this you know as, uh, uh, as he's evolved in, in, in his role and kind of taking more input from guys like Chris. Uh, and, and you could definitely could see could definitely could see that and feel that. Um, so I, I'm kind of backing up everything you're you're saying there and. Uh, I, I just I just think it's great. I'm wondering what you feel the team needs to do to kind of push it all the way and get to the NBA Finals. Well, first of all, Monty's grown, and he'll tell you that. And uh, you know, as as a young coach, he's put in a position where he's given the job, and uh, he probably didn't have as much experience, and and his life experience has changed him tremendously, uh, losing his wife. And, um, you know, and raising his five kids, but getting remarried. And, you know, I, I mean, just, you know, Coach Wooden at UCLA used to talk about balance mm -hmm. and uh, balance in your life is so important, whether you're whatever you're doing uh, professionally or and so forth. But, um, you know, the balance in, in Monty's life has been created by, you know, going to San Antonio, being under Pop and seeing how he coaches and then being pushed out of San Antonio by Pop to go to Portland and learn under Nate and uh, Nate McMillan and gives you a different perspective, not just in the game itself, 
but in life and how you treat people. And then, you know, he's been in so many different situations, we went to USA Basketball with, with Jerry Colangelo and Mike Tuszewski and, you know, Mike D'Antoni and, and Pop and so forth. So you've got all these different coaches and, and Tebow. I mean, he talks about Tebow and uh, his relationship and, and, and Michael in, in uh, Denver and just, I mean, all these different guys. And it's a, definitely a fraternity and you learn from everybody. But he was such a young guy that he was taking all these things from everybody. But, you know, the relationship that he and Chris Paul have, it, and he said it after the game that, um, you know, when they won and, and going into the, the final four now, but uh, that, you know, he and Chris Paul have been through a lot together. And uh, during that time that he lost his wife, it was very difficult. But, you know, Chris Paul, which I'm sure a lot of other people stepped up and uh, were there for Monty. But, um, you know, if you saw Phoenix play this year and when you see him on a daily basis, uh, we beat a lot of good teams this year. And so what is it going to take to, you know, get to the finals and, and win a championship? they'll keep doing the same things they're doing. Uh, certainly they'll raise it to a different level. And as you know, when you're in a series, you're always making adjustments uh, from game to game. But uh, I, I think that, again, we're the underdogs. And, and even the Lakers, I remember doing the Lakers uh, towards the end of the season, and you heard all this snipping back and forth, and uh, Kuzma was not happy, and Anthony was this, and LeBron saying this. And so there were a lot of things flying around in L.A. that, players weren't happy and it was being shown on the court and uh so to me you you have an edge when you're an opponent and you can go against a team that's uh not always together but i will tell you phoenix is always together yeah and it's really seemed that way and and you brought you brought up two really big points in nba circles you know one was popovich and his tutelage with some of his assistant coaches another was the situation that's going on in portland where they're kind of looking for their new next head coach it was reported today that becky hammond one of pops um assistant coaches you know she's been there i think now five years and she's been in the running for a couple of head coaching jobs over the last few years that she's among the group or list of finalists do you think it happens this year where we get a female head coach in the NBA? Aaron, I, it's going to happen. There's no question. Uh, Charles Barkley talked about it last night, too, on air. and said, how can you have 30 teams and only seven black coaches? And when you're told, and Kenny Smith said, yeah, when you've got a, a Hall of Famer in, uh, in Patrick Ewing, and he had an unbelievable career in New York, and then you're telling me that he can't be a head coach, he's got to sit on the bench for how many years? and doesn't get the opportunity, and, but he's at Georgetown as a head coach now. So, you know, you're looking at not only race, but you're looking at gender, too. And uh, it'll happen. It'll have to happen with a, a team that has uh, got a general manager and an owner that is very, very supportive of a, a woman being in there. And, uh, and if they do poorly, are you going to fire them right away? I mean, you may not have, you may be going to a team that really isn't that, that, that strong. So are you going to give them a chance? But, you know, I talked to, uh, talked to several coaches in the league. And, uh, you know, if you don't get fired, doesn't mean you're not going to get hired again. You know, and, uh, and that's the nature of the game in the NBA. But, but in saying that, is Becky Hammond going to be the first? Is she, because that's what the media knows, because she was in San Antonio with Pop? Or is it going to be a Don Staley? Or is it going to be a Carol Lawson? Or is it going to be a Denny Busick, who's been in Dallas for a long time, too, under uh, Rick Carlisle? So, you know, there's a lot of women out there that are with NBA teams and uh, whether that GM and that, that owner can take what the media is going to say, they're going to be critical no matter what. It's just, it's, it's how it is. And, and so that person has to be strong, 
and uh, and accept what social media is so different today. And thank goodness when I try, had my tryout with the Pacers because I, I, social media is just brutal. Well, I, I, well, I was going to say, and you know, part of my thought process was it was I was reading uh, an article in the Athletic today that basically it, it's completely off topic to what we're talking about, but it was like how NFL teams design their plays, and a lot of coaches will look to the lower levels to implement things at the higher levels. And so, to bring this back and to make sense of where I'm going with this, does this need to happen? at the lower levels in the college ranks or maybe in secondary leagues before, if it doesn't happen this year for the NBA to do it, to well, take that have. step? We've had some women that have coached in the G League and, and some of the men's leagues, lower leagues. And uh, certainly we've seen that on the officials. I think we've got, what, seven women officials now in the yep. NBA? But you start in the, in, the, in the G League and you start in colleges and you start in the WNBA and to try and work yourself up to the uh, NBA, which uh, there are probably about a dozen NBA officials that started in the WNBA. And, uh, but in saying that, um, yes, it just, do you work your way up? Well, I think most of the women that have been in the situations that are being talked about, they have worked their way up. They've been coaching. And it's the same concept as, as what Kenny Smith said. You know, what does it take for an athlete that has been a successful coach or a successful player to be named a coach? But it, again, it depends on the GM and the owner taking the chance and really believing in whoever that person is, whether it's whether it's an African American or whether it's a female. And um, you know, it's going to be somebody that they've got to really believe in and and promote. And uh, no matter what the media, the local media says, and and that's the tough part because the media today, and especially social media, but the media today. They can hire you and fire you and ruin your career. And a so a couple of questions off of, off of all of this. And the first is, do you feel like, and you, just for your personal opinion, do you feel like this will be kind of a, once there is one woman who becomes a head coach, like there'll be others within a short period of time? In other words, nobody wants to be the first. Is, it, is there any kind of sense or feeling like that or me? I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes I've always felt that in, in my own life with, my, with respect to my own career at, at times that, you know, that if I, once this happens, then, okay, then, you know, we're obviously not going to be waiting six decades for the second one, clearly. So I just, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You hope. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, because you can go back to the eighties and nineties that yeah. when Pat Summit was coaching right. and Tara Vanderveer at Stanford, they were talked about, Hey, let's bring them out to the men's team. Let's let's have them coach the men's team. They are that good a coach. Right. And uh, so this is not a new thing with Becky Hammond and Carol Lawson and and Don Staley and so many other women, Jenny Busick, and uh, but they have been coaching. They've been coaching a long time. Katie Smith. Why not Katie mm -hmm. Smith? Right. And um, but I think that the fact that there have been women that have talked about, uh, there have been women that have made that step, but it hasn't been talked about. Uh, I do believe that we're still in a, in a, in a holding pattern where uh, whoever the first is, you know it's going to happen where, where they'll get fired. Um, I was the first to have a tryout in the NBA, and I'm still the only woman to have a tryout in the NBA, and that was back in 1979. So to say that uh, there's, will there ever be a woman in the NBA? There's so many other variables. It's not just about the X's and O's. It's not just about, you know, being able to coach. Uh, it's about your relationship and, and the trust that your players have in you and uh, that what coaches have, the trust 
that your assistants have. Nancy Lieberman was in Sacramento. And uh, whether the trust was there by the head coach or not, I don't think that the relationship was great with the GM and so forth. So, you know, things kind of, you know, disintegrate a little bit. And, uh, but is this going to be the first or the last? I don't think it'll be the last, but I don't know how long it will be until again, an owner and a GM, which are usually white males. And uh, we have a few black GMs like James Jones and uh, Toronto, and, and there's a few others, but you know, are they going to hire somebody that they're familiar with and comfortable with, or are they going to go out on a limb again and start hiring women? You also talked about uh, the trust factor, and we know that the NBA players league, and so you know, players often dictate you know, what, what, hap- what happens and who comes in and who stays. So you have a situation where um, the current players, so, you know, the younger players, the Devin Bookers, were basically, you know, babies in diapers when the WNBA formed. And so they're, I guess where I'm going with this, I'm wondering if the younger players used to seeing the WNBA, used to seeing uh, female professional athletes as, as compared to, say, the older guard who, uh, those, a lot of the, those guys are probably retired, but, but just feeling that, that a younger player, that it wouldn't be as hard to get through those guys now as it might have been back in the 80s when you're talking about that summit. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, that's a great comment. And uh, certainly having something exposed. And we all talk about, you know, what happened this past summer with COVID and, you know, Black Lives Matter. And mm-hmm. uh, so if we don't address Black Lives Matters or gay issues or abortion or, or transgender or so many other different issues that are going out there with, with police, you know, so forth. So if those aren't brought up, then everything stays the same. Right. And uh, as uncomfortable as conversations can be, uh, you'd love to have a, a group of owners and, uh, and general, manager, general managers in a room and have somebody like Charles, who would be perfect. The, okay, how come there's not more African-American coaches? You know, right to their faces. Right. And, uh, but I, th- I think sometimes when it's the first, uh, the, a lot of people will say, oh, well, we tried it. We tried it and it didn't work out. And so why do it again? Mm-hmm. But um, it'll, it'll take... I think a lot of people to believe in uh, whoever that person is, again, whether it's gender or, or race or religion, uh, whoever that person is, as far as are you going to take another chance, not just on that person, but somebody that is qualified. So we know since Title IX that uh, about 75, 80% of the jobs in women's and girls' sports were coached by women. Since Title IX, less than 50% of the jobs are held by women. Well, why? Because because men are applying to jobs and they know they're going to get paid and uh, they're taking the jobs away from women. Now, are women stepping up for those jobs? That's the other question. But um, to say that why are all these men getting hired uh, to coach women? And uh, so we know that men are in the locker room on the women's side. So I, that was one of the big questions they asked me right. when I tried out with the Pacers. Where, where are you going to shower? You know, and... Uh, but we've seen if anybody's got any respect, you go into the locker room, which, again, there are lots of male coaches that have been coaching women. And there's a sense of understanding what, you know, uh, proper etiquette is. And uh, but the, the thing is, as far as another woman being hired right away, uh, whether another team is willing to go out there and go after somebody that they feel is qualified over a male, sometimes they're going to do something that's more comfortable for them. You know, and I, I, this has been a great conversation and very eye-opening for me. You know, 
one of the I'm things I think. I'm right all the time. No, no, this is this is tremendous. But but where I'm going with this is, you know, the the W celebrated 25 years last year, and you talk about the league taking a chance. They took a chance on the W. You know, you were part of that first telecast 25 years ago with NBC. In your eyes. How much has the league grown? Because I see it now from a social standpoint. I see so many people, whether it's in my Twitter mentions or on my timeline in general, talking about the W and how it gains traction and how it continues to gain engagement. But if you look at the league five years, 10 years from now, how do they continue to build on the excitement that the league has now? And where do you see it going? Well, you know, the bottom line is David Stern, when he's live, and Adam Silver have both said, this is the right thing to do. And the fact that you have, you know, the interesting part for me is when I go out and speak in, at the camps and so forth and talk to college and high school girls, and I say, well, what's your favorite team? And they'll say Phoenix Suns, the, you know, Warriors or, or the Chicago Bulls, whatever. Who's your favorite player? KD, Steph, you know, it's like, no, you want to be professional. You need to follow girls and women need to support women. And the fact that we have a league. And that's why, you know, people say, well, is there going to, going to be a woman to play in the NBA? The possibility is always there. But now there's more opportunities for men because you've got the G League, you've got Europe, you've got so many other things. For the, there's so many men to compete against. And now that you do have the WNBA, uh, you've got women that are going to play in that league. But, um, yes, the league is going to be around. The hard part is that the media continues to compare the 25 years to the 75 years of the NBA. And uh, I would say that the WNBA is way ahead of the NBA in its first 25 years. The hard part for me is that there is still not a, a, a lot of respect from the media, which is mostly men. And um, for example, yesterday was the 25th anniversary, as you said, of New York playing LA. And uh, what was on TV? The Suns and Clippers, the US Open, the uh, soccer. And so when you go to Sports Center, even though ESPN is a partner, do they show any highlights? No. There's no highlights being shown. So who makes that decision for that network? Who makes the decision for your local sportscasters not to even have give you five seconds or 10 seconds worth of what the game was about? You can't find me 25 lines or space in the newspaper to put it in there. So what's been great because of there's so many more outlets today, whether it be podcasts or whether it be, you know, the athletic and, and so many other different avenues of getting things out. And, and uh, so you do hear more about the league, but on the mainstream, you're not. And uh, I do believe that that's going to change. I do believe that there's going to be expansion. I do believe that, uh, you know, these players that are coming out are unbelievable names and great players. Uh, just the fact that the Olympic team was picked today and a lot of controversy that uh, Neko Gumake did not make the team. And uh, her sister Chene came out and wrote an unbelievable uh, statement. And uh, Neko, who was waiting her turn, and uh, people will say, well, she was injured. Well, Diana Frost has been injured, and some of the other players have been hurt along the way this first part of the season. So how does Neko Gumake not make this team? And, um, but uh, it just, you know, so the, the great thing, I think, about the women's game that we've had is that we do have a conversation. Who is the greatest player? Is it Diana Trossi? Is it Lisa Leslie? Is it Lauren Jackson? Is it Cynthia Cooper? Is it Cheryl Swoops? Is it Tina Thompson? Um, you know, we've got these names now, these wonderful names that people can discuss of these players because they're, they've been recognized. You know, when I played 
or Carol Blazowski, Nancy Lieberman, Lynette Woodard, and so forth. You know, the media, a lot of people didn't know who we were, but we obviously were good enough that our names are still being mentioned today. So that's a plus there. But the fact that the players are being talked about, you know, it's like, you know, LeBron or Jordan, Kobe or, you know, and so KD is the greatest player right now, or is it such and such, Steph Curry, and, and how does Devin Booker or not even make one of the top five in the NBA? And uh, there's so many good players, but that's the same thing in the WNBA. There's so many good players. So, yeah. how, so how do you get the younger kids to, 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 like you say, to change their mindset to where it's, you know, when you ask them your favorite team, well, it's the Phoenix Mercury, it's the LA Sparks, it's the New York Liberty or the Atlanta Dream. How do you change that mindset to where that's their first reaction? And, you know, a second part of my question is, does it take moments like what we saw last summer where the Atlanta dream really stood up for what they believed, what they thought were right, and they used their platform for real change within the league? Well, this is kind of a double question to answer. It's, it's exposure. So you see what happened with not only the Atlanta dream to get somebody else to vote. You know, that was a big one too, but the whole league was about supporting Black Lives Matter. And, uh, but that's been happening before. The women... The women have had the louder voice, in my opinion, than the men. For example, and this is just, again, I, I'm not putting anybody down, but when the Donald Sterling thing with the LA Clippers and the players came out and threw their jerseys into the center of, of the court before the game, protesting Donald Sterling, I thought, that's not a protest. You've got all these fans in the, in the um, arena. A protest is not playing. And I, I'm really good friends with Bill Russell. And so Bill has told me so many stories about the 40s and 50s and 60s. And, and um, you know, Muhammad Ali and I, I know Kareem is now, they've got a, a social um, uh, award named after him and uh, with the NBA, but uh, and he just came out with a documentary and so forth. But, you know, the social issues, but, you know, Bill Russell's been involved with it for a long time, Bill, Jim Crow and so forth. So, you know, you've got to make a statement and say, we're not doing it. We're not going. We're not going to play. So the very first All-Star game in the NBA, all the players were sitting there. They hadn't gotten paid. The owners came in and said, said, why aren't you out there? Get out there. They said, no, we're not going. Pay us. You haven't paid us our salary. So okay. until they got paid, did they go out and play? And uh, so to me, the Clippers, you know, they made a statement, but they didn't really make a protest. And uh, but I thought that they did last year when when, uh, you know, Chris Paul and, and Russell Westbrook and they all stood up and said, we're not going to play this game in Milwaukee um, right, right. when it got shot in the back. And it just like, I mean, really, is it what is America not seeing what is happening? And but I think the women stood up what was it, three years ago and Maya Moore, Maya Moore quit playing, who is at the top of her game in this league and to really, you know, spend her time to get an unjust and innocent man out of jail. And, um, you know, but the women have always locked arms together. And maybe yeah. because it's not as many, it's 144, but I will tell you, it's a sisterhood. I, I definitely, I definitely agree with everything you're saying. I'm going to want to kind of just to say one more time that, it, you know, we go back a couple of decades, the NBA finals were still on tape delay. It's like it's not like the NBA Finals were on ABC 
you know, since its inception. So there is an evolution, there is a process, not to borrow the term from the Sixers. So yeah, I mean, 25 years, you know, strong. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, th- I think the league is healthy when you can have the conversation about who got snubbed from, from, from an Olympic team. Because that, t- that, that tells you that you've got depth, that you've got opinion, that you've got a b- variety of viewpoints that obviously whoever was deciding that team didn't feel that she should be on it, whether we could, we could certainly question that. And on a personal note, I want to say my first WNBA game, 1998, Phoenix, the lo- to date, the loudest game I have ever been at. Well, Cheryl so, Miller helps that. Cheryl, yeah, is, yeah, uh, yeah. she is like a Pied Piper getting everybody into it. Yeah, that was, I mean, just, just, just the, I mean, incredible energy in the arena. I mean, it was one of the greatest sporting events. I was, you know, I was, and these guys are for, I was at the double nickel game at, at Madison Square Garden, a group of Knicks fan, but, but, and that was fine, but just in terms of like volume and, and, and energy, and it was a regular season game, mind you, not, right. not a pull out a playoff game, but anyway, I do, this, this has been, this has been fascinating conversation. Um, A.B., you got anything else? No, I mean, just to build up this. And we've done this show for a year and a half, and this is the best interview we've done, hands down. So we cannot thank you enough. I I mean, to get this kind of stuff from a Hall of Famer, it's priceless. We appreciate appreciate every moment. Honestly, you follow up with the NBA, and like you said, Otto, that you know the, the game was being taped delayed. I mean, when it was Larry Bird and, mm-hmm. and Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but even before that, when my brother David Myers was playing for the Bucks, he said the first, the, what, the first round was best two out of three, I think. Or, and the finals were best three out of five. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and again, financially, money changes things. Right. So you've got the best out of seven, which that's a grind on those guys. You know, if you have to yeah. play a seven-game series getting into the finals, that's that's 21 games. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of games. And uh, But, you know, this year with it being 72 games, I think was a big plus for the league. I really do. I think Adam Silver has done a tremendous job and his, his staff in working these things out. Um, you know, and, and going back to what the NBA and the WNBA has been a big part of it, uh, we just had Rick Welts in uh, Phoenix and interviewed him, who's just retiring with the, the uh, Golden State Warriors, uh, their president and CEO. And, uh, you know, we, when he was in Phoenix in 2011, he came out with a big article in the New Yorker about being the first gay executive, and uh, which was huge. And, and he said, as a 13-year-old boy, that would have never happened. And then when you've got 13-year-old girls and boys coming up to him and saying, you know, way to go, Rick, kind of thing. And uh, but even today, again, a conversation that is open uh, on the men's side. I just saw today that there was a, a football player. Yeah. That yeah. That he, yeah openly First gay. active NFL player. Yeah. But it, didn't the kid from um, Notre Dame, the linebacker, played at San Diego? He was openly gay, right? Uh, M- Michael Sam a couple, couple years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, in terms, in terms yeah, but of- he wasn't active, right? It was well, he, uh, he, he he he'd come up before before the, before the draft and then I think he was drafted but it wasn't you know, a re- regular player like in terms in terms of someone who had regular playing time and, and regularly logged right. um, you know uh, you know seasons under the belt and all that unlike but, but uh, you, you know, think he was he was probably the first to come out oh, I, yeah. there were others there were others yeah. but we didn't hear about it you know yeah yeah, yeah definitely definitely but you know I, I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for women to be able to do something that they love just as much as men and they work as just as hard and put in just as much time. And yet they're the ones having babies 
that have to take time off and have to get back into shape. And again, whether it's basketball or Allison Felix and uh, other, you know, track and field or swimming and, and uh, so many other yeah. sports. Yeah. But, you know, we come back because we love the game and we have the support of the people that love us. Very well said. And I got one more question for you. Who was the last person you played on one in one and one and what was the score? <laughs> I, I haven't played one on one in so long, Aaron, I cannot even remember. <laughs> I'll take oh. my little free foot bank shots. <laughs> hey, I can't hit a shot to save my life. So Use anyone... the backboard. <laughs> no, it still doesn't help. It's still doesn't... <laughs> I have this weird overhead shot, and it's awful. Well, so I used Jamal to go to Wilkes. camps, and people would make fun of me for it, and I'd be like, yeah, but I'll hit a free throw. Like, so did bad. Jamal Wilkes, and then you look at Rick Perry. Rick Perry, just, I saw him the other day at a golf tournament, and it just drives him nuts not to take somebody, you know, some, some of these players that struggle to make free throws, and he said, why won't they go underhand? Why won't they go underhand? And Shaq said it. It's too embarrassing. Even if you make the shots, they're no, too embarrassed to shoot Embarrassing. I'm sorry to cut you off. Embarrassing is 30%. That's embarrassing. <laughs> 30% and not getting to the next round because of it? That's embarrassing. I'll right. just, just say it. But. Right. Okay. Nothing else. Yeah. And I think we, I think we blew the stop sign uh, a few <laughs> times over, but, but thank you so much uh, for, for, for taking the time to join us. We, illuminating conversation. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Otto. Thank you, Aaron. That was dope. If you'd like to hear more of Catch and Shoot 2.0 and all the Pure Hoops media has to offer, you can find us on our website and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the video versions of Catch and Shoot Quick Hitter, as well as some fun video segments from all of our other shows here on the Pure Hoops Media YouTube channel. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.